It is a joy and a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, and it's so interesting because this process is so funny. It started in my mind, in my heart. Like uh, three months ago, Michael started talking about what they were going to preach about. And they mentioned that it was going to be one of the sermons was going to be shame. And right when I heard that, something leaped in my heart. It's like, ooh, I wish I could preach that sermon. But as soon as that happened, the other side of the heart went like, what? What are you thinking? You're not good enough to do that. You can't get up in front of all those people to talk about shame. That's one of your struggles. You struggle with shame all the time, and you're going to start getting up in, in, in front of people telling them what to do when you don't know what to do half of the time. I mean, this is happening in my mind. And then I finally say, you know, you're right. Never mind. Nah, I'm not going to do that. And then the Lord has such a sense of humor. And here we are. Michael started getting sick last Sunday night. And when Thursday hit and he was not doing any better, I started getting like a little anxious, you know. And I'm like, Lord, what are you trying to do? I'm going to have to find somebody for Mike to preach. So, of course, I have Matt and Robbie that I go to. But the thing I forgot was that Mike had another prior engagement to go preach on Friday night at, in Orlando. And I was like, who am I going to say to Orlando? So immediately I reached out to Matt, and I wasn't sure he wanted to do it because I didn't want to go to Orlando. So we sent him to Orlando, and then I talked to Robbie. I said, Robbie, can you take this? And he's like, yeah. Ruthie, why don't you, like, preach one point, and I'll preach another point, and we tag team. And I'm like... Okay, I'll think about that. So I started praying, and Thursday night I went to bed, and I said, Lord, let your will be done. This is so interesting that this is happening right now. But that next morning, I got up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I had been dreaming all night about shame and what I could say and all this kind of stuff. So I got up and started writing. And around 8 o'clock in the morning, I shoot him a text and say, Hey, Robbie, I don't know if you want to do this, but... I'm really feeling strong about this um, sermon on shame. Is there a way you can give me a shot at this? I'm okay if you think it's not, you know, a good idea. I mean, the text came back. I'm like hoping inside of me, like, just say no, just say no, just say no, just say no. <laughs> but of course, he said yes. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I was trying hard not to do it, but I think the Holy Spirit and our wonderful pastors just back me up and say, let's do this. And that's what I want to do today. Shame has been such a big thing in my life. I know what it is. I know how it cripples you. I know how it puts you down. I know firsthand how it can hurt your family when you use it to bring shame into your family. I know how it is to bring shame into your um, spouses and, and families and, and just situations and friendship. And I know that it is crippling and I know that it hurts and it's painful. And I want to be a testament to you that when you can look at Jesus and let him do the work that he only can do in your heart, shame can no longer reside in the middle of your being because it cannot, darkness, Please, at the sound of the name of Jesus. We were singing about that. 
So shame has to flee at the sound of the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to learn. I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Um, there is an author that I really uh, encourage you to try to read his book. His name is Kurt Thompson. He wrote a book on the solo shame. I have been discipled in so many ways by his teaching. I have the opportunity to go down to Orlando a couple of weeks ago at a conference, and he was teaching there. Guys, he, he, he is a psychologist, but he loves Jesus so much. And the way he explains the way human beings are and the things that their brain works and the way he brings the gospel to it all is just amazing. So I would love for you to, after I talk about this, dig a little bit deeper on your own time if this is something that you think you struggle, which I think all of us struggle with this, whether we want to admit it or not. It might not come out as shame, but guys, let's notice. When you're angry, many times what's at the root is shame. When you're depressed and anxious, many times if you really dig deep at the root is shame. So it's a bigger thing that we think, and I'm hoping that it will be clear as I go through this and that the understanding you get, the wisdom, it will go down to your heart so it just makes a difference and your life will be able to be transformed forever. So why don't we pray and let Jesus do his thing. Lord, we love you and we need you and I pray that our hearts will be so open to what you wanna do this morning. You are here and you're moving in such a beautiful way. I pray that you will make it clear that shame, you don't want it to reside in the middle of our hearts because you already pay for that on the cross. But that you want us to look at you, focus at you, because when we don't, that's when shame creeps in. Help us do the hard work of figuring things out with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So my big idea today is going to be shame is a parasite that feeds and destroys us in isolation, but Jesus is the antidote that liberates and heals us in community. Let's say that again. Shame is a parasite that feeds and destroys us in isolation, but Jesus is the antidote that liberates and heals us in community. And I hope that you, we will understand this and we go out of these doors today knowing that we need community. Shame isolates, but Jesus heals in community. Genesis, uh, Genesis 2, 16 through 18 and 24 to 25, we're going to read that. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. You see that? Even from the beginning. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And going back to verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And that's what I want us to focus on. 
they were naked and not ashamed. And it's interesting because when the author of this book says they were naked and not ashamed, he could have said they were naked and happy. They were naked and joyful. They were naked and excited. I mean, there's so many things that he could have added at the end. And for some reason, he chose to be unashamed. And I really believe that the reason is that was actually the first thing that came into the world after being perfect and beautiful and excellent a place where things were able to be created, when God used women and men to procreate, have children. It says he, he made both human and, and Adam and Eve to create and procreate, be collaborators with God into that beginning of the world, into making things beautiful. Humanity was created beautifully. And their purpose was to create beautiful things and to subdue the earth together. We were created to be seen, to be soothed, to be safe, to be secure. But evil was against this beauty from the beginning. And the evil of shame, like a parasite, tries to undo, to distort, to shatter and devour that beauty. The first thing that the crafty serpent did was to isolate Adam and Eve from God to be able to disturb that relationship that they so deeply had. And when the serpent got him to be away from God, he waited until God was in a different place, that's when he actually started distorting that's when he started stealing and putting just doubt in their minds of what God was doing. And as soon as Eve took of the fruit because she saw it was good and she wanted wisdom and understanding, as soon as she ate it and then gave it to, his, uh, to Adam and Adam ate, that emotion or that feeling or that sense of that evil of shame overpower them, and what happens after that is so sad. Because it did, in many ways, separate them from that relationship that they so closely had. They were able to walk with God, and now they wanted to hide. That's the first thing they wanted to do. They wanted to hide and cover themselves and turn away because it was too much to bear what they were experiencing. Does that sound like some things that we experience nowadays? It's not just back then, we experience that. So now we come to that, what is shame? In the dictionary you can find, and it says, shame can be defined as a feeling of embarrassment or humiliation that arises in relation to the perception of having done something dishonorable, immoral, or improper. It is something that we experience and feel in our bodies. We feel like our ears heating up. We feel it in our abdomens. We feel it in our face, in our hands. When shake comes in, your body actually feels it before your mind understands that you are experiencing shame. Did you get that? 
Our minds are so incredible that before you can even know and put into words what you're experiencing, your body already felt it. Shame comes in different forms. But the main purpose of that shame, of that evil of shame, of that parasite of shame, the main purpose is to destroy and whatever was beautiful, he wants to devour. And shame, when it hides in there, it becomes very subtle, it hides, and just when you think that that is, oh, why am I feeling that way? Well, maybe that's because I'm just like that, right? I'm just like that. That's part of my nature. That's where I'm. And in reality, it's that shame that has been hidden that eventually will come and try to get all the beauty that is inside of you that you're supposed to exp- express. It's ready to devour it and get rid of it. But we want to expose shame this morning. I remember when Michael and I first got married, he was driving a stick shift car. And I was so nervous about learning how to drive that stick shift car because it's hard. There's like 10 pedals that you gotta worry about and and after the 10 pedals on the floor, then there's that one in the hand. It's just like, how do you even do that, right? So I started doing that and it was so hard, guys. He would tell me, it's not that hard, I'm like, Easy for you to say, you know how to do it, I can't do this. And I remember one time we were going, trying to do a curve, he was trying to teach me, we were like on 39th, and as I'm turning, he's like, put on the clutch, and I'm like, which one is the clutch? And like, we're going really fast, and I can't stop, and then I did stop, and what happened to the car? Oh my gosh, the car just went, you just stopped. I was like, oh my gosh, did I break it? What did I do? I was feeling shame. He wasn't trying to give it to me, but the way he was talking to me, man, that shame just came. It just came. And shame is like a a manual transmission car. It's like a stick shift car. To accelerate and to slow down, you have to put the clutch, right? Or the car won't do anything. And shame is like that. Shame happens when we apply the brakes without putting on the clutch. What is the clutch then? The clutch is that relationship that we have with someone. That we feel like we are seen, soothed, and and heard, and safe, and secure, that No matter what happens in my life, whether something good or bad, I can always look back to that person and they will look back at me and we are connected and reassuring. And I know that that person is not gonna leave me even in my mistake. The clutch is able to hold that engine on when we have to stop. Do we get that? Shame is the application of the brakes or the acceleration of the car with no clutch applied. 
it just stops. Let me put it another way. Let's say you have a meeting, you work at UF, you have your business meeting, you're going through different things and ideas, and everybody's talking, and then you give your idea, but all of a sudden, there is no response. It's like cricket, 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 nobody hears anything. And you're like, uh, did you guys hear me? What do you think of my idea? Nobody's saying anything. How do you feel when that happens? You feel bad. And many of us would immediately let shame in if something like that happened. Why? Because there was a decision made, there was something done, there was something that got not approved without applying a clutch. You need it. We need each other to be able to live this life without shame. You can't do it alone. Shame happens everywhere. It happens in the football field, in boardrooms, between elders and pastors, in parenting, in marriage. It happens everywhere. But it has to be relational. Another aspect of shame is that when we are in shame, it actually makes us where we cannot think straight. Things don't make sense. And you can hear something that somebody's telling you, and because you're stuck, you can't hear it right. You might hear it a different way. You are telling yourself a different story that is not what really is happening. That's what shame does. It blinds us. It doesn't let us have good judgment. We don't want to have that in our lives. And not only does it make us stuck, because we don't want to show that shame to everybody, because if you have shame, you are weak. Do you hear those messages sometimes? When you have shame, you are weak. And then what we do is suppress that shame. We try to manage down and put down our shame so hard that all the energy that you have to live is going towards pushing all that shame down instead of going some other places. So how do we interact with shame and how does shame interact with us? Yeah, I don't think shame is this thing or an indicator that something is off. So when that happens, when shames come in, I don't blame shame for everything because shame is actually telling us, telling us something is off, something is wrong. And one of two things you can do. When shame comes in, you can either run away from relationship with usually that's what we do as human beings. I mean, you, you see a kid and you say, no, what do they do? They bolt out and go. They don't want to be in your presence because they know they did something wrong and they don't want to get caught, right? But shame will either drive us away from relationship. That's our response. We did that. Shame didn't do that to us. We responded to it. Or shame, you can respond to it by coming towards relationship. And that's what I want us to get um, a little bit more uh, progression. That shame tries to hide in isolation. 
Shame is a parasite that feeds and destroys us in isolation, but Jesus is the antidote that liberates and heals us in community. Shame has a progression if we leave it unchecked. And we see it from the beginning of the world when Adam and Eve started. The thing that they experienced was isolation, right? But then they had Cain and Abel. And that shame did not get addressed. So they don't know how to deal with all this stuff inside. That shame unchecked became very violent. And it came out as how? Murder. And then that happens throughout the entire Old Testament. If you see, there's different ways that shame kept coming out and kept coming out in different ways because it wasn't unchecked. But then Jesus comes into the picture in uh, John 9 in the New Testament. And he's with the disciples, teaching them and being with them and encouraging them. And shame still creeps in, even in Christians. Who would have known? Did you know that? Shame is very inside hiding a lot of Christians. And you know how it came out? In John 9, if you look at the story, Jesus was walking and they saw a a man that was blind from birth. What was the first question the disciples asked? Right here? Who sinned? Did he commit a sin or did his parents commit a sin? Wow. Wow. These disciples have been with Jesus, and in chapter John 1 all the way through chapter 9, they had seen water turn into wine. They had seen kids that were paralyzed be able to walk again. They had seen fish multiplied, bread multiplied. They had seen um, people that were repenting. The Samaritan woman got saved. They, They seen people doing miracles, miracles by the hundreds being made. People being healed and saved and delivered. They saw all that. In the nine chapters before, and yet when they came to this chapter, they still didn't get it. Why? And I wonder if there's some shame inside of them that never dealt with, that they never were able to deal with, and then that shame in them comes out in condemnation towards others. That happens now, guys. Look at our world. What is happening with all this shame culture? Is the shame inside of us that we don't know what to do with? Then it decides, I'm going to come out and come out in condemnation, which hurts other people. They could have been like, Jesus, look, there's a blind man right there. What are you going to do this time? How are you going to do it? Are you going to spit on the floor? Are you going to take him out there so he can take a shower? What are you going to do? I mean, Jesus did so many different things. So many different healings in so many different ways. I'm like, Lord, help me. But yet they were not able to see that because the shame inside of them was blinding them to others because he was blinding them to themselves. So what are we to do about this? And this is the part I'm super excited about. The answer to shame comes to us in the person of Jesus and in the community of his followers. To heal shame, my story, your story, our story, our testimony, if you want to put it in a different word, needs to be transformed, regenerated, and changed. 
My story as it is, is infected with this parasite of shame and only Jesus can liberate it through community. Do you hear that? Shame is the parasite that feeds and destroys us in isolation. But Jesus is the antidote that liberates and heals us in community. God encounters is what we need to heal shame. So go with me to Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising, rejecting the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to focus first on that first part, that by so great a cloud of witnesses, what does that mean? When you think about it, all of our stories have happened in some kind of community. We come into the world, and we come um, with stories, you know. If you see a little kid, all they want to do is talk, 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 talk. Why, why, why? They're trying to make sense out of the world because it doesn't make sense. And we don't stop talking after we come out of the wound. We don't. After that, forever, we're going to be talking and trying to figure out what is my story? How does that make sense? That doesn't make sense. And what we need to realize is that stories come in community, but stories get healed and restored in community also. There is a collaboration with Jesus and people that happens when our stories are going to be transformed and changed. So my question to you is, do you have at least three people in your life that they know every single thing you've done? They've seen you in the bad times. They've seen you in the good times. They know your secret things that, I don't know, if your spies find out, they probably leave you. You know, do they know that kind of thing? And sometimes if you do have a couple friends that are like that, even the bad things they know, you wish they didn't know. But that is so much like the evil that is around us. The enemy doesn't want you to be transparent. And I get it that we have been hurt in relationships. But guys, the only way you're going to be healed is through relationships too. Which doesn't make sense. Unless you have Jesus in your side. We get hurt in relationships, but we get healed through relationships. Evil longs for us not to live transparent lives in order for us to have to burn the energy that we need to burn to contain all shame down instead of using that energy for parenting well, for being spouses that we need to be for each other, for friendships, for taking risks, for starting a new business, for your jobs, for finding the cure for COVID. Instead, we spend all that energy pushing shame down when we could spend that energy in creating, in dreaming, in doing the things that Jesus created us to do from the beginning of the world. 
So where could we find these witnesses, right? I wish I could just go to Walmart and say, hey, I ordered three witnesses. Can you give them to me now, you know, or just go, actually, forget going to Walmart. I can just do it on my phone with Amazon, right? Amazon, can you deliver three friends that are going to be here for me so I can be there for them, you know? But it just doesn't happen. And Jesus knows that finding these people is hard work. It's hard work. Our world wants us to, even, even America is very big on individualism, you know. You are your own man. You are your own woman. You do whatever you want and do not dare let anybody tell you what to do or what not to do, right? We're like that. But we cannot be by ourselves. There is a, something I read on the brain. It said that the brain needs connections not only to flourish, but also to survive. If I am to flourish, I'm going to need this cloud of witnesses in my life in order to, for me to have the kind of life that Jesus claims to want to give to me. The brain can do hard work for as long or for a long time, as long and it, it's not, as it's not doing it alone. So your life, your mind, your brain can do hard work as long as it's not doing it alone. And that's what it's going to take to get this work of shame exposed from our lives. How many examples? So if you were going to walk, be walking out in, the, in, a, in a street or, or by the sidewalk and you saw a little red wagon coming, kind of somebody dropped it off and, and it's just going three miles an hour, right? If you needed to stop that wagon, what can you do? Sometimes you can just put your leg out and you stop it, right? Easy peasy. Now, let's put you in a railroad station in front of a train and the train is coming three miles an hour. It's just the same velocity, right? Are you gonna be able to stop that train with just your leg? Why is that? The problem right now is not the velocity. What's the problem? The mass of that train. That's the problem. And if we translate that to shame, the mass of shame can only be contra, uh, put against it. You can only stop it with the mass of some safe community. That's the only thing that will stop it. And I say that again, the mass of shame can only be stopped with mass of a good, healthy community. The Bible says then, after we are covered by so great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Another thing to notice is that the healing of shame often requires restraint. Sin is my willingness to turn away from relationships and into isolation in order for me to meet my needs by myself on my terms. Can you relate to that a little bit? I can. 
When God created the Garden of Eden, he put that tree that nobody was supposed to eat, the one with the truth and the knowledge of the good and evil, put it right in the middle of the, of the uh, garden, right? And he had said no to that. And I'm here to tell you that God's no was planted in the center of the garden, and we need to understand that God's no is an important part of him loving us as is his yes. God says no to us, but he says yes. And both are very important. If I told yes to my kids all the time, some of them would have diabetes by now. <laughs> because they love sugar. You know, they love sugar. All of us love sugar, I think. I've only met a few people that don't like chocolate. I was like, are you sick? Are you... Do your taste buds don't work, you know? <laughs> and there it is, me bringing condemnation to them. But there are going to be things that we are going to have to throw off, that we're going to have to resist, that we're going to have to show restraint about in order for shame not to take root in our lives. Therefore, since we have this cloud, let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. Or in the Greek, the word entangle can also be translated as distract, distracting. All sin begins with distraction. It begins with my mind being taken to someplace else. And eventually, shame parasitically takes advantage of this. So when we throw off those things that easily entangle us, we're seeing that sin is one way that shame attaches itself to. So for many of us, if you don't want shame in your life, there's going to have to be a wrestling with this sin issue. And we're going to have to bring it to the cross for the Lord to be able to do something with it. He later says that then we will run with perseverance. And let us run with endurance or perseverance the rest that is set before us. In that part, we see that for us to run with perseverance, there's going to have to be a practice. You're going to have to practice doing this. It's not just going to come down and by osmosis happen in your life. There's some things that you got to practice. Just like if you want to get good at playing the violin, putting the violin there is not going to do anything unless you pick it up and do it. And the Bible is our manual of how to do this. The Bible is showing us how to do this. He says then towards the end, and let us run with endurance the race that he set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We need to put our eyes on Jesus to be able to eradicate shame from our lives. It's the only way that happens. When Jesus was hung on that cross, he counted a joy to be there only because he was able to look at the Father and see this is your will and we're going to do it. I'm going to endure because there is joy. I know what's coming after. I know what's behind it. 
and is the salvation of all humanity. He looked unto Jesus. Have you ever thought about Jesus being at your house? And I know this might seem silly for me to ask, but guys, there's a lot of people that see Jesus at church, but they can't see Jesus at home. And Jesus is everywhere, I tell you. Jesus is everywhere. I sometimes see Jesus as my own kids, not in a bad way. Like This is why I see what I mean. On Saturdays, I wake up late. It's the only day I can wake up late because I don't have to take kids to school. So I tell my kids already, I guess I've been using shame. Do not dare wake me up or things are going to be bad. <laughs> Listen, after this term, I'm learning. I'm trying to get this in me. But they know. But sometimes they do come. They're so cute. And especially one of them is always right there. And I can smell, you know, she's breathing. I can hear her. And when I get up, say, hi, you know, good morning, mama, it's a beautiful day, I love you so much. And you know what? I feel like the Lord is with us like that, but we're just not seeing it. We wake up and we open our eyes and he's right there. Good morning, beautiful. Good morning, handsome. And if you don't like hands, I'm like, make hunk. What, what word do you like, man? I don't know what word you like. Hot. Good morning, hottie. So he is there, and he wants to lock eyes with you. Because when you lock eyes with the Lord, nothing else matters around us. Everything definitely grows strangely dim because we're locking eyes with a maker, creator of the world who made beautiful things and he meant for us to be beautiful things. But we get damaged here and there. I get it. But there is a solution for that. We need to experience that gaze that he has for us because when he gazed at us, it's like gazing at someone who's gazing at, at me in the part of my life that I hate the most and that takes practice. Can you picture Jesus gazing at you after you've been doing X, Y, and Z? Can you picture Jesus gazing at you with a good gaze, not a like, the eyebrow, you know, lifting the eyebrow, what did you do? That's not a shame. He doesn't shame us. But after we've sinned, can you go look at him? Peter couldn't. Peter couldn't. And I went to um, Italy a couple years ago, and in one of the churches there was this painting of Peter after he had denied Jesus three times. And the picture, the painting depicted him Jesus in the background, kind of looking with compassion. And yet Peter was in a corner, looking down, away from Jesus. And I wonder if Peter would have just taken time to look at Jesus, gazing, catching those eyes and look at him. I wonder if Peter could have heard the words saying, Peter, I knew that it was going to happen. We talked about it a few days ago. Peter, it's okay. 
I'm going to see you in three days. Do we ever hear voices like that, stories like that? My challenge to us is like, guys, we need to hear voices like that. Because shame gives us glasses and eyes that the only thing we see is condemnation and guilt, and we can't get out of that alone. But Jesus, my beautiful Jesus, he's a finisher. He's a finisher. And I want you to do an exercise with me when you go home and... What I want you to do is take a three by five index card, and I want you to, throughout the day, whenever you sense, you feel, you hear anything that brings shame or tries to bring shame to you, I want you to put a mark on that paper. And it might seem simple, And it is simple, but it is very hard work because we're not used to looking for shame. We just let it be. We just grow. Did you realize as I was studying for this that shame can enter and usually enters into a person at the age of 15 through 18 months of age? At that age, shame is coming in and kids don't even have words for it. So if you ask somebody or a little baby like that, if they understand what happened, they're not going to understand what's happening. I mean, sometimes I'm 46, I don't understand what's happening to me, and I have words for it. Evil is like that. It takes advantage. It goes in the most vulnerable places to try to destroy the beauty that that was created for The reason I want you to do this is because the more you're looking for things, the more you're going to see it, the more you're going to recognize it. And when you do, I don't want you to try to go deep in that. Of course, some of you are going to be at work. You're not going to be able to be like, well, why did that happen? Why did it bother me? Did it trigger when my dad said this 10 years ago? You're not going to have time to do that. I get it. But what I'm looking for here is times where you are actually experiencing something and able to recognize it at the moment where it becomes a little bit more familiar, and the more you look for shame, the more you're gonna see it, the more you're gonna find it, the more you're gonna expose it, and leave it there. When we practice that, then we know, okay, I see that, you don't want me to preach, I get it, and here am I. I'm gonna do it anyways. I'm gonna do it anyways, because when we let shame lead our lives, It keeps you from being in doing the purpose of the Lord has for you. And for some of you, you're sitting there in shame, and there's so much more for you that you're not experiencing. And the Lord wants you to experience. And I'm going to end with this. God is always looking for us. God is always looking and finding us because he wants to restore our lives. In John 21, now we see that Peter was pretty down, and Peter Peter was experiencing a lot of shame. So what did he do? He went back to the only thing he knew what to do. He went back to fish. Jesus had called him before and told him, right there, 
Jesus, I am going to make you a fisher of men. But the shame that he had covered his dream, his vision, his desire to really do that. He didn't know if Jesus would take him back, probably. I don't know. I'm just thinking, I can relate. If I did something wrong, I probably think, yeah, nobody's going to take me like this. Nobody's going to want me to do that job after I messed up really bad. That's how we think. But Jesus is so good and so graceful that he said, no, I'm running after you, Peter. I got unfinished business with you. And then he tells Peter, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? By the third time he said that, I wonder if Peter was like, what else do you want me to say? I said yes, and I don't know. Do you believe? I mean, it was confusion. Peter probably had a lot of questions, and he did have a lot of shame in his life. But Jesus decided to say, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. You see, Jesus was coming to restore Peter at that moment. To ensure that, Peter, no rock of shame will be left unturned until I am done with you. Shame is going to be totally eradicated from your life because I need you to accomplish and do what I created you to do from the beginnings of the earth. And he's telling you the same thing. And the beautiful thing that I see about this is that he did this in the midst of all the other disciples. And he had to. He didn't wait to take him aside and say, Peter, listen, remember what happened over there? You ignore me or deny me. It's all done. It's all under the cross. You're good. He didn't do that. He actually did it in front of all the other disciples because there was something at the root that everybody had to experience. Peter needed to get his shame taken care of, but the other disciples needed to get the condemnation that they put on others taken care of. So that when we know in the future something happens and somebody falls, you don't put them down. You take them up with you. You are an armor bearer for them. Somebody that picks each other up because you know who you are in Christ. Peter was saying, or Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, stop looking at your shame and stop looking at what you're not. Stop looking at what you think you are because that's not who I tell you who you are. Look at me because I know who you are. I see who you're becoming and I'm putting in you that creative that creation that, that you can create with me I'm calling you to partner with me to go and be fisher of men to be the, all the things that I wanted you to be from the beginning guys I think this is, this is what, what we're, we're landing we were meant we have two callings in life your first calling is to bear the image of God and your second calling is to restore the image of God Humanity and evil left untouched will mess up the image of God. 
But if we are the bearers of the image of God, then we can restore the image of God in ourselves and in others when we are looking straight to Jesus, when we're just focusing on the Lord. Why? Because he did that on the cross. That's what he did. He died on the cross and he bare the shame and he, because of the joy that was set before him, he was able to see straight into the Father and accomplish the will of the Lord in his life by that gazing. And that's what I want to encourage you to do. To gaze. We're going to gaze. We're going to gaze together. Find a community where they can be safe. Church, we're supposed to be safe for people. We're supposed to bring people to Jesus, not push people down. I've done it. I've done it with my children. I've done it with my own children. I have pushed them away with my shame. We don't want to do that. The Lord restores. Praise the Lord. He does. But let's be the church that he wants us to be in.